that's the way you start it right there. That's the way you do it. You played your guitar on the MTV. Isn't that the way the line goes? You play the guitar on the MTV. That's the way you do it, right? Isn't that how it goes, Britt? Right. What, where's the chicks for free and your drugs for nothing? No, your drugs for free and your chicks for nothing? <laughs> Something like that. That same song, right? Yeah, it is the same song. It's Money for Nothing by Dire Straits. And I don't know why it was on my mind when our opening theme played, but it was, so I went with it. Uh, by the way, welcome to everybody. It works. As, as people are filing, filing into the chat rooms, thanks for being here for the live stream. And if you're listening to the podcast version of the show, please share that as well. We have, uh, I don't know, we get between eight and 10,000 downloads of every episode of the podcast, like within 48 hours of the show being released and we're really really grateful what do you prefer Britt? do you prefer a podcast version of the show or do you like to be around for the live stream of a show does either one matter to you uh it, it actually doesn't uh i mean i am a podcast and books on audio consumer uh that i mean i, I listen to it all day while i'm working because i normally work alone and i do listen to the podcast normally the day after the next day i don't i yeah. very rarely listen to them live so that that's how I do. Uh, yeah, I, I'm a I'm a day after when it's convenient for me. You remember uh, the, so I can pause it while I got talk to people and. Yeah, do you remember the days whether it was a radio show or a television show where if you didn't catch it at the time it aired, good luck ever seeing. Oh yeah, it. remember those days? You had to sit oh, in front of the television uh, used, at eight o'clock on a Thursday night to be able to catch the show you wanted to see. I. I remember listening to Dr. Demento and struggling to stay awake until he played either Fish Heads or Dead Puppies. And then I could go to sleep after I heard that song. But, you know, I would, I would, yeah, you couldn't tape it. You couldn't, you yeah. had to, you had to wait. Yeah. Now oh. everything's just on demand. My kids are so spoiled. Oh, Whatever no. they want, on demand, tip of their fingers. They do. You know what kids don't know today? Patience. Kids don't know the address. Patience, number one, but the adrenaline rush mm -hmm. of when the commercial starts to race to the bathroom, go to the bathroom, <laughs> shoot to the kitchen, grab the soda pop, pour it into the cup, put it back in the refrigerator, and pretty God, you get the cap on all the way, and then run back to the couch without spilling anything before it starts. Gosh, how big or was your house? Or you hear your sister how or big, brother go. How big was your house? Yeah. How far did you have to run? <laughs> it was pretty far. Yeah, it was it yeah, a couple far. thousand square feet, I think, you know, but... But it seemed far. I was a little yeah, kid. I had little yeah, legs. Yeah. But then you would hear your brother or, your, or whoever go, it's on! It's on! Yeah. Well, and then, you, I mean, if God, if you're in the bathroom, uh, washing your hands is out the window. You're just going for it. And they also don't appreciate or understand the fact that, uh, you know, you had to wait until that one night a year that Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer aired on CBS to be able to sit down and watch it. Yes. And if you missed it, that was it for the year. You had to wait for that one night. And it, you planned, you're like, for three weeks, you planned that night in advance because it was so important to be there catch it get yeah. ready for oh it's, it's yeah it's a lost it's a lost yeah. uh lost thrill i guess uh speaking of thrills we're going to talk about something that's quite thrilling tonight actually I've got, <laughs> this, I've got this book here origins of the gods we've got one of the authors gregory gregory little with us tonight we're going to be talking about this and uh this is something that uh we've touched on a lot of times on this program and the predecessors of this program these ideas of interdimensional beings and and connections between ancient cultures and these in extraterrestrial or international interdimensional beings and uh, gregory is far more um fluent in this than I am and, and we're anxious to talk about but I just want to give you a little information about our guest tonight because he's a really 
really uh, accomplished guy. Uh, Dr. Greg Little has a master's degree in psychology and a doctorate in counseling and educational psychology from Memphis State University. He's a nationally certified psychologist who specializes in criminal treatment. He's the author or co-author of more than 30 books and some 40 treatment workbooks. He's been featured in 14 documentaries on the History Channel, History 2, Discovery, National Geographic, Sci-Fi, MSNBC, and the Weather Channel, along with his wife, Laura. For over 10 years, he was involved in the search for Edgar Cayce's Atlantis in the Bahamas. And of course, as I showed you, we're going to be talking about his book that he co-authored with Andrew Collins, a book called uh, Origins of the Gods Tonight. But I'm curious, um, Greg, before we get into uh, the book and the and the information that went into the book... First of all, welcome, but you and your wife did some exploring, some searching for Atlantis, the Atlantis as defined by Edgar Cayce, is that right? Yes, uh, we've been heavily involved with the Cayce organization for quite a while. Um, I'm a lot older than I look, everybody tells me that. But anyway, uh, (laughs) we've been in the, um, we have been in the Cayce organization for decades and starting around 2001, uh, actually, the same time I met that British guy, Andrew Collins, who's the co-author of this book, uh, we began a search that lasted over 10 years. We made 25 week-long trips into the Bahamas, got our own boat to do this, did a lot of underwater exploration. We got our own side scan sonars. We actually had three of them at one time. Uh, we did a lot of underwater filming, and that was most of the documentaries we made. We found 31 crash planes during all that, including oh, wow. three wow. that are definitely Bermuda Triangle planes that disappeared, supposedly never found. Uh, and then the others, uh, some of them we knew what they were. We found some drug runner planes. That was interesting. Uh, and just a lot of other stuff. We found loads and loads of uh, stone formations, but we have never said that we found any remnants of Atlantis. And that I could talk about probably for hours on end as I can this topic. So if you want me to stop, whenever you want me to stop, do something, wave or something, because I can talk your entire hour and keep going. I want to ask you you about your thoughts on Edgar Edgar Cayce's ideas, particularly this Atlantis idea. Obviously, you thought enough of it to go in search of it. I mean, you, you, uh, you spent time, energy, money, and other resources in search of proof of his ideas. But in general, after the 10 years of searching, where do you land on those ideas now? Well, uh, the last thing that we found relates to what we were looking for after we began. We actually began it because of Andrew Collins. And uh, at a conference in Virginia Beach at the Casey organization, Andrew showed a couple of photographs out of some books uh, by Charles Berlitz that came out in the 70s of two underwater structures that no one had ever been able to find. One of them was supposedly a triple ring of stones, standing stones in shallow water in the Bahamas. People had searched for it for decades, never able to find it. And I, I remember seeing him show that picture in the ARE, and I turned to my wife and I said, we're going to go find that thing. If it exists, we will find it. Uh, And at the time, I was a a kind of an active private pilot. I don't fly planes anymore. Uh, So we searched around and weirdly, nobody had ever talked to the pilot that took the photo of the triple ring of standing Uh stone. Nobody in all those years, they've done all this searching. So we found the pilot, 
and I asked him if he were if he knew where it was, and he said, "Yeah." And he pulled out a pilot's map, pointed to the exact spot, and part of the reason nobody had ever been to it is because it is in Cuban airspace. And in the 70s, Cuba oh. was still shooting down planes that happened to wander into their air defense zone. Yeah. So, but it was there, and we flew beneath radar. Uh, we got a charter plane. The pilot <laughs> who owned the charter plane was delighted to fly into Cuban airspace. Uh, we eventually found it. We found the other structure. We went to them, and they were not what people said they were. They weren't standing stones. Again, that's a it's a long story. They were actually gigantic sponge worth a fortune because we had a sponge diver that wound up taking us to them after we found them from the air and got the GPS. And I see the look on your face like, what the heck is that? <laughs> I mean, like a, a sponge, like, a living like you sponge. would buy a natural sponge, gigantic, that when the tide is low, they stick out of the water and they were in a perfect ring around this perfect circle. And there are lots of these circles wow. in the Bahamas. And the second structure we found was also what we considered natural. That was going to end it. And then when we were ending it, the very second trip that we took to the Bahamas, a guy came in and told us about a structure on Andros Island. I was very skeptical, but I went out the next morning before we flew out and we found this huge stone formation it had three separate lines of stones. It ran for over a thousand feet. Uh, the last episode that we were on of UFO Hunters, we went out and dove it. And you can see some of the film from UFO Hunters when we were with them. And it's called the Underwater Area 50 or yeah, the Underwater Area 51. It's that episode. But anyway, that's kind of a summary of it. The last thing we found was a gigantic stone building that was nearly 400 feet long and it was 150 feet wide it had fluted columns the giant stone slabs on the bottom uh it's in a very strange area about 30 miles south of bimini and in edgar casey's readings one of his readings about atlantis he said that there was a temple of the poseidians which is what he called the people of atlantis a temple that was underwater in the Bahamas, somewhat south of Bimini. And it's an area where nobody had ever searched before. So that's the last thing we found. This summer in August, the History Channel's show Mystery Quest uh, will have uh, some photos and information of that on the show. That'll be sometime this August it comes out. Greg, did that... that uh structure, the last one you found that you just described, had that been previously undiscovered? Yes, nobody had ever found it. Uh, and it is, we, we were working under archaeological permits primarily with the film crews, we went under film permits. But under the archaeological permits, uh, we had the Bahamas officials notified uh, and they declared it an archaeological site. There's a long, weird story about that, but a person representing Microsoft, Microsoft Corporation, wound up buying the salvage rights to it. Oh, wow. And the idea was to rebuild the structure and they haven't done anything. He did, he did manage to go to it. We're not allowed to say where it is or give any instructions about how to get to it like the GPS because somebody could come in and loot it and take whatever's there. But it, that'd be a big task. You would need a gigantic boat. It's the size of a World War II aircraft carrier. Wow. That's basically what it looks like on the bottom, surrounded wow. by pure white sand. That's It's, it's just... It's stunning. Under about 20, 25 feet of water, depending on the, the tidal flow. 
And what do you suspect? Uh, just a sec, Brett. What do you suspect is yeah. is is there an interior to it, or, or is it a well, skeleton, or how does this work? And it if there's looks an in- like. Go ahead. It looks like the way it's laid out. It's like a giant teardrop shape. And the way it looks, it looks like a huge wave, like a tsunami hit it and just knocked it over. That's what it looks like. It looks like it was just totally destroyed and knocked over by a giant tsunami. It doesn't look like it. It definitely didn't fall off of a boat. uh, And it wasn't a boat that sank there with it. Uh, But that's what it looks like. Look, And it's made out of polished schist. It is purple schist. And it's the same kind of stone that the Oracle of Delphi is made out of. We had it tested at the two premier geology labs in the United States at universities, and both of them said the same thing. It either came from Norway or Greece. That's where the stone came from. So this is underwater. You, I got a couple yep. of questions. I'll just fire them at you. You can answer them how you feel. So it's underwater. So was it always underwater? Do we think that they built it underwater and did their thing underwater? Um, did you ever have it dated? Do we know how old it is? And um, how how long do you think it's been destroyed? Okay, first of all, we don't have it dated. It is not the kind of, it's not beach rock. You can carbon date beach rock. Limestone beach rock can be carbon dated, but you can't carbon date schist because it's not made the same way as limestone beach rock is. Uh, how long it's been under, we don't know. But it would have been above the surface on a very high spot, roughly 3,000 to 5,000 years ago. Uh, and certainly, if it was around seven to 10,000 years ago or 12,000, 12,000 years ago would be the time of Atlantis and Atlantis's destruction, it would have been at least 300 to 350 feet above the water. And I'm actually here in Memphis. I live in Memphis, Tennessee. And here, I'm only 210 feet above sea level in Memphis, Tennessee, because the Mississippi River's right here and it's all flatland. But that would have been over 300 to 350 feet above sea level in 10,000 BC. That is known. Uh, Nobody that's a geologist or an underwater archeologist would dispute that. So yeah, it was probably built above water some time ago, but no, we didn't date it. There's no way that we can date it. We're not allowed to do any work at it at all anyway, now. Um, uh, do, what was the, what do you, do you have any idea of what the population was in that area when it, I mean, to make something like that, it's a big undertaking. I mean, was there like a, I mean, a, a major metropolitan city of the time there? Uh, you know, that was the, that would be the little and great Bahama bank. The great Bahama bank was huge, uh, during the last ice age until about 8,000 years or so when most of it went under. And then the islands of today were, were the islands then. Uh, but we know this. Uh, I've done a done a lot of books on South America and Native American mounds. I wrote an encyclopedia about Native American mounds. And most people don't know this. At the time Christopher Columbus got to the Bahamas, he never got to the Amer- he never got to North America. But by the time he got here, there were over 50, the lowest estimate over fifty seven million people living in the Americas. And that's the low estimate. The highest estimates are, is it was somewhere around 180 to 200 million people living here at the time Columbus came. Wow. So yeah, it was, and Cuba was highly populated when they came, when the first Spanish came in, highly populated and the and the Spanish went about literally eradicating the entire population, 
which they were successful with it. There's a great book written about the last survivor of it, and they actually sent people out into the mountains to get this person and basically kill him. Uh, so it was genocide. So yeah, there were probably a whole lot of people living here That's then. I'm just thinking back to my history, I, and I really didn't go to college. I went to trade school. Um, but what I remember from history is that basically it was Christopher Columbus and what followed him pop really kind of brought the population. So you're saying before Christopher Columbus, this place had, and when you say the Americas, yeah. you mean South America, North America, the both continents. South America, North America. million people? Yep, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Some of the biggest city, I mean, Mexico City, when the Spanish went in, had over 100,000 warriors that met him, just 100,000 warriors. And the army the Inca had was over a million. That's all very well known. In the Americas, Cahokia had somewhere around 50,000 to 100,000 people. That's near Alton, Illinois, right across the river from St. Louis. That's all mainstream, accepted archaeology there. So, yeah, it was densely populated. Now, there were lots of areas, just like there are today, where there's not cities. Like, you go into a lot of mountains, you won't find a lot of people. Uh, but it was densely populated, very well known. Uh, with By the time any of the European settlers came in, the population had been, the, the population decreased by 90 to 95% because of two things. One was the systematic extermination of the people, but the main reason were the diseases that the people here had virtually no resistance to at all. So they died off very quickly. That that actually is what called the myth of the mound builders. When the first Ameri when the first Europeans came in and started settling, they found these bizarre earthworks and mounds everywhere. Nobody knew who built them. Even the Native Americans that were there at the time said, "Oh, we're not really sure. It was the ancestors. We don't know who those people were." And that started a myth. But the the ancestors of the Native Americans built them. It's just who those ancestors were. That is the question. But yeah. Last, that's a that's a big topic. Yeah. Last question about the the structure that you found uh, discovered underwater. Uh, did you notice any cultural similarities or, or cultural references to the way it was built or the shape or anything that you could connect directly to a known civilization? It's polished schist. It looks a lot like Roman and uh, Greek structures, like their temples. Uh, it, like I said, it had some very old. Uh, Fluted columns, which fluted columns are really sections. They're sections, maybe three to four feet long. And then they're carved, and then another column would cut, would sit on top of it. And then what they did is they plastered the outside of it. But this is this is polished schist. It's the same thing, like the ancient, uh, the Oracle of Delphi is one example, but loads of them in Greece were made out of polished schist. And it's beautiful. Uh, when we first got a piece of it for testing, we got a pretty big piece off of a we broke a piece off of what we called the refrigerator because it was like a, it looked like a giant refrigerator, this giant piece of it. And we didn't know what it was at the time, but when we broke it off, it actually glowed purple on the inside because the sunlight was coming through and it was really stunning to see. Oh, wow. We got a lot of photos of it and so on, but yeah, it, it looks like those now exactly what it is, when it's from, we don't know. All right, so I have to ask you, as we transition the conversation to begin talking about the book, uh, you're a psychologist. You've, I mean, in, in reading the, the bio, your work, you, uh, 
I, I, there was a criminal connection. You'll have to tell us a little bit about what that work is. But at what point did this fascination, interest, and exploration of these more, I don't know what we'll call them, maybe spiritual or esoteric or whatever ideas, when did that intersect your life? Because I don't know that I would have naturally, naturally made an assumption that a psychologist might be out uh, searching and researching this type of stuff. Well, first of all, psychology when you're when you're in training and when you're in school and it and when you're a professor, they you get you're given a wide latitude for interests. And so uh when the interest really started was in the early seventies, and I have written a bit about this, but roughly in nineteen seventy two, uh one roughly in nineteen seventy two, I started graduate school in psychology and I was in the area of psychopharmacology. My first publications were on the drug cycle, uh, not cyclohexamide was one in 75. I, I don't even want to talk. It's a memory drug. It causes amnesia. But anyway, uh, a drug called <laughs> scotophobin, which is absolutely bizarre. Uh, anybody interested, Google scotophobin and you're in for an eye-opening thing, scotophobin. Uh, and also I published in Morphine Addiction specifically on brain anatomy and experiments with animals by injecting morphine and these bizarre proteins that we got out of addicted animals. And that was all in the Society for Neuroscience publications. And that was in 73, I started publishing. So I was in it for a long time. So in 1972, my major professor, who was a psychopharmacologist, PhD from Vanderbilt University, and his wife, who was a psychiatrist, MD from Vanderbilt University, they got interested in the paranormal right at the time that I started graduate school. And we began researching in the psychology laboratories, all kinds of things such as key bending and spoon bending was then a rage. Yuri Geller stuff. That's right. People yeah. were saying you can do that. Sure. Also, you had trance channeling where people were doing that like crazy. It was all over the place. Uh, there was pyramid power. Supposedly, you could put you could put a dull razor blade into a pyramid built to certain specifications, and that razor blade would sharpen. And you could put food in there, and it wouldn't rot. And you could put all kinds of things in, and have you know it would be good for them. So we actually tested that. We built pyramids in the laboratories. We tried all the things that uh, you were supposed to do. Uh, I'll tell you right now, all of our research and all the times we did never worked like it was claimed to work. <laughs> We went to spoon bending parties. Now again, I'm with this, I'm just a lowly graduate student. I was actually then working for the Office of Naval Research on a grant, which is another, that's how I got uh, departmental funding. <laughs> I was one of two people that were that worked for the Office of Naval Research to do it during that time. So we went to these spoon bending things. We watched people bend spoons, bend keys. We tried it, never worked for us. Uh, but we watched other people do it. I, I don't have a comment on that beyond watching. And yeah, they, they did it, but we couldn't. Uh, we also went to trance channeling. I was never really impressed with it. And uh, we hooked up philodendron plants, giant philodendrons in the lab in a copper shielded room, Faraday cage. And we hooked up a uh, eight channel physiograph to it and conducted experiments to see if it could feel and if it could identify specific people in the room. And lo and behold, it did. Wow. We ran three different what? tests of it. And every, yeah, every time we got the same results. 
Uh, I can tell you how I, I'll try and do this quickly. I, like I told you, I get into this and then we can go off in all different directions. Yeah, go. It's excellent. It's excellent. Uh, Keep going. Right. So, so the idea was then that plants had feelings and so on, and they had some sort of consciousness. I actually believe that, that they do. Uh, but anyway, we, we took a philodendron, hooked it up to this physiograph. One of the full professors at the university sat at the physiograph and six graduate students were given uh, a choice of six pieces of paper. One of the pieces of paper said, tear a leaf. The others were blank. Our instructions were, if you get the blank piece of paper, go into the room, stay in there for two minutes, don't do anything, and then leave. The person that had tear a leaf was supposed to go into the room, sit in the chair, go tear a little piece of the leaf off, sit in the chair until the two minutes were out, and then come out. Then, after an hour, we went back into the room one by one. And the idea was the person who had torn the leaf, when they go into the room, if the plant could sense that it was the person who hurt them, it, whatever, by tearing a leaf, I don't know the gender of a plant. That's why I called it <laughs> it or whatever. Anyway, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not a biologist either. That's not I'm a psychologist. Not a biologist. I'm but you misgender a anyway. plant. <laughs> I know. So anyway, it did. It worked. It worked every time. The plant immediately on the physiograph, it started responding like crazy when the person who had torn the leaf went into the room. So that is one of the studies that we did. But I did that for years with them. Uh, and then I got involved in UFO stuff in the 80s. I was very interested in abductions. I was very interested in stories like Edgar Casey and how in the world somebody like Edgar Casey could do what he did. Uh, and that actually got me into Casey and I got my wife into Casey at the time too. But that was kind of the start. My first book came out in 1984. It was called The Archetype Experience. And it was a follow-up to Carl Jung's first book or his last book, which was on UFOs. And it was called Flying Saucers, A Modern Myth of Things Seen in the Sky. It came out in 1959. Nobody had ever written a follow-up to it. So that's how I started. All right. I just have to ask you, with the, the plant experiment, I mean, that's kind of earth-shattering in a way. And yeah, it's been replicated other places. So what are your thoughts on that? I mean, you said in, in opening the conversation, you said you, you believe the plants have a consciousness. But I mean, that's has has more work been done to follow that up, not necessarily by you, but others that that get more uh, maybe data as to how this this phenomenon occurs. Is it something is it something uh, related to consciousness or is it just some kind of physical reaction? I mean, there's so many things, I suppose. Uh it could be the electro it's sensing an electromagnetic field we all have our own specific electromagnetic field electromagnetic frequencies uh i don't really know i know in the 70s and 80s there was a lot written about it uh honestly i found it interesting and i moved on to other stuff and i haven't read anything about that in in decades probably been too busy doing all this other stuff that i do yeah you've got a lot going on so go ahead Britt. So, 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 so you're just out of college, basically. You're a graduate student. You're, 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 you're torturing plants or whatever. You're into this weird stuff. And then, what the hell was your pickup line to your wife for her to say yes to go out with you? Well, my <laughs> wife, I met. She was a she was a student uh, at at Memphis State, then Memphis State University. I hate it when they change the name of the university. It's now the University of Memphis. <laughs> But anyway, still the same. Uh, so 
she, uh, I first met her in an elevator uh, that went up the fourth floor where all the la laboratories were. And she was going up to the fourth floor and I got on the first floor, looked hippie like I was a, sort of a hippie. And so, and which was weird because I was going to Navy bases all over the South uh, being this hippie doing testing of Navy pilots. Cause for two years I did that in my, with my graduate assistantship, but I met her when she volunteered to assist in a learning class that she was taking by a person who then became my major professor. And I was doing my master's thesis on the effects of a drug called cyclohexamide on houseflies. And she had a choice to do that in her class, or she could go to a mental health center downtown and do some volunteer work there, which is what she wanted to do, but she didn't have a car to get downtown. So she wound up helping me run my flies with that drug. And that's a story that's bizarre too. Uh, I actually started out injecting house flies, which is kind of a trick to do. And I'll tell you how you do it. You, yeah, take, you, uh, do that. you, get, a house, you get a house fly in a tiny little cage and you put it in the freezer for five minutes. True. Now when it comes out, it's stiff. It's as stiff as stiff. <laughs> So we yeah, we had this giant, giant magnifying glass. We also had microscopes and I had to figure out dosages. We had micro syringes, which are incredibly small and minute quantities. You're talking about a millionth of a liter that could, you could get in these things, huge, very, very tiny amounts. So under this magnifying glass, it looked like you were trying to stick a telephone pole into a human's body. You know, imagine that. Yeah, That's wow. how big it was. And I started out by giving them amphetamine and it woke them up instantly and they zizz, zizz, zizz around in a, in a circle like crazy. And finally, we decided we had to give it to them in sugar. Uh, and that's what we did. And it's a very weird drug. And I actually talked about the drug in the first book uh, that I did called The Archetype Experience. Because if, if a human could, if you could get cyclohexamide in your brain, you would lose short-term memory so that somebody could abduct you and you wouldn't remember anything from that time period. It would just be a blank. It'd be a black spot. You wouldn't even know it was there. You wouldn't know that any time it so passed like, at all. So like men in black look into the light and flash and you don't remember nothing? That's kind of, well, it's only short-term memory. It only affects, it doesn't a term long-term, it doesn't affect long-term, just short-term memory. Right. Roughly a half hour or so. Yeah, that's what it does. Wow. So you're so you're giving you're giving flies drugs. You're sticking them with needles. You're freezing them, and then you go, "You want to go out to dinner one night?" And she says yes. Actually, that's true. Yes. Yeah. I took her to a really <laughs> nice place. Which I didn't have any money, but I took her to a really nice place. Her father was a 32-year elected prosecuting attorney. Same thing as a district attorney in Missouri. Uh, so that was quite a uh, quite a thing. We've been married since uh, nineteen. Well, we've been married forty two years, and we were together for five years. Before. Wow! So we've been together forty seven years. That's amazing. Sorry, JV. Yeah, no, Back that's, to the show. that's great. Greg, let's talk about uh, the book Origins of the Gods. Uh, tell us about. I thought, the our, time, I thought <laughs> our time was up here. I'm looking. At right, we got a little time left. Let's talk about the book. Tell me about the title Origins of the Gods and how you came up. Uh, you know, with the idea of, of, of writing this to begin with, what, what, what it's about. 
Well, Andrew Collins and I had written a couple of pro things together before this, and we made a number of films together and documentaries. Uh, and our, la our, our earlier book was called Denise of an Origins. It did really well. Uh, and so we decided that we wanted to go back to our roots. And part of it is it's a search for the paranormal. Both Andrew and I have an interest of like, what is the paranormal? What is it when you have like the contactees in the 1950s, when a flying saucer would land and an entity would walk out? Sometimes it was a glowing being. Sometimes it was a Nordic woman. Sometimes it was some sort of a creature that looked like a typical gray. But they'd, they'd walk out, they'd talk to a contactee and they'd say, we're from the planet or we are from Jupiter or Mars or Venus or somewhere like that. Uh, I was all. We were also interested in people like Edgar Casey. Edgar Casey had experiences with angels. So history has this long, this long, long series of events about these creatures. Call them angels. You can go back to biblical times. But mankind has always interacted with these things. And of course, that's what the show Ancient Aliens is all about. Andrew is on most of the Ancient Aliens shows. He's one of the featured uh, people that's on it all the time. He's also on the William Shatner's new series almost every episode. And so we decided that we were going to do a book because we have had the exact same ideas since 1984. We both started publishing then. We became friends in the year 2000. Uh, we have been over there and stayed with him and traveled around in England. He's been over here many times, stayed with us, and we've done a lot of work together. So that's really where, where it started. We wanted to answer the question, what in the world were these ancient gods and what is it that people are interacting with? And that is what the book is about. One it's kind of like the source of the paranormal. Yeah, one of the uh, uh, most influential pieces of media that affected me in in my life's path, I'll, I'll say. It was uh, Eric Von Daniken's Chariot of the Gods. Uh, really uh, changed my perception of everything when I saw it as a kid. Uh, and it kind of led me to where I am today, working in the paranormal in a lot of different ways, as did uh, Leonard Des Moines In Search Of, too. That was another very influential program. Eric Von Daniken wrote the foreword to your book. How do his ideas and your ideas uh, work together or butt heads? How do they, how do they fit as a puzzle? Well, they don't really butt heads too much. And uh, Eric Van Doniken read it, of course, and he likes the idea. And in the book, we acknowledge that ancient aliens were probably here. And I'll tell you why we acknowledge that. Uh, there is evidence of it. Uh, I won't say that, you know, the show Ancient Aliens is an entertainment show. That's what it is. People learn a great deal about archaeology. They learn a lot about history, and they learn a lot about other things on that show. But it's primarily entertainment. So I don't think that everything possible, everything we have, came from interactions with ancient aliens. But even scientifically, the greatest skeptic of all time, Carl Sagan, Carl Sagan, I'll say it again, in 1963, it's amazing how many people don't know this. In 63, Carl Sagan wrote a scientific article in a peer-reviewed journal called Space and Science. In that article, he calculated the odds that aliens had visited. He said is it, an, it is an absolute certainty that aliens had visited here in ancient times. He said to look in ancient Sumeria for the evidence. He also calculated and said that it is 
that the odds of them being here and how many visits they made, they made 10,000 visits, he said. That is what he thought over a period of about 2 million years. Now, if you divide 2 million by 10,000, you don't have a visit every year. You don't have a visit every 10 years or 100 years or whatever. So it's not that often. And he said they would monitor. They started probably about 2 million years ago. Uh, they came maybe once every 10,000 years until the last ice age began. Then they would increase their visits when they started seeing beings that were our ancient relatives uh, on the hominid chain. And he said that probably at the end of the last ice age, they started coming pretty routinely. But Carl Sagan said that. They made 10,000 visits. And that's remarkable. Huh. So we, Andrew and I both believe that ancient aliens, in fact, probably didn't did come. But we don't believe that all the stuff that people are reporting as UFO abductions and UFOs and all the sightings that people made make today and reported in modern times, uh, all the contactee reports, we do not believe that those are alien in the sense that they are extraterrestrials coming. That is where the idea of the electromagnetic spectrum comes in, the idea of another energy force. Uh, in my part of the book, I went back to and really talked about Native American beliefs in this because Native Americans had an answer to all this long ago. And Native Americans had an answer that really matches uh, current science pretty well. If you actually read the Native American part in that book, there's about five chapters that really go into it. It talks about their belief system and uh, says that at the beginning of creation, there was a singularity. And when the singularity split and it split into two parts, it created a three-part world, an upper world, a lower world, and a middle physical world. And that what was happening here in the middle physical world was an interplay between those two other forces. But everything has an essence of spiritual energy. Just like Carl Sagan said, we are all made of stardust. We are. Everything is connected. And that's really the first part of the book that I talked about. All things are connected. And that is a main Native American belief. And of course, Andrew's part gets into quantum mechanics and physics and interdimensionality and all of that. Uh, so uh, Von Donikin likes the idea. It expands his idea into something else. It tries to explain all of the anomalies and things that we can't explain today about why the ancients did what they did, why there are so many earthworks in the Americas, why they're shaped the way they are. Uh, this explains it, uh, but a lot of it comes directly out of ancient Native American beliefs. Yeah, you touched on the Native, America, Native American connection, and you talk about it rather extensively. Can you give us some more examples of how some of the things that maybe we may know colloquial Lee, as opposed to more scientifically, that we could make this connection for ourselves? you have examples? Uh, in terms of the Native American belief yeah, or the whole it, UFO stuff? Well, Native okay. American beliefs as it, as it comes to what you wrote about in the book. Sure. Okay. So uh, it really goes, it starts with their creation story. And that is everything started from a singularity of energy, which they called spirit. You know, they, they use the term the great spirit. That is a translation of, of their word, whatever word it may be in the tribe. But it all started as a spirit. And in, in, this, in this explanation that they gave, and it's really from the mound builders, the Zuni, 
the Zuni tribe, which is the oldest Puebloan tribe that exists, and the Algonquin tribes, they said that it had a type of consciousness and for its own reason, which is inexplicable to us, it's beyond our understanding, it, it became two parts, two opposing parts, almost like a yin-yang symbol and began to rotate. But that's a contradiction in terms. You can't have a two-part singularity. So the exact moment that it, that it created these two parts, it split. The upper world is in this idea and in this spiritual belief. It is the power of creation. It's where things are created. It's the upper world powers. The lower world is the power of disorder. So you have order in one hand, disorder in the other. So we term that, using some of their terms too, creation and disorder is the process of entropy. Entropy is a scientific physics fact and that everything that is created from the moment of its creation, it begins a process of breaking down back to its most primordial component, whatever it is. Everything that's created, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a physical object, doesn't matter what it is, it begins to, it becomes disordered, it falls apart. So what they said is, what Native Americans say, and this is their sacred belief, this is not the children's story. The children's stories were for the commoners, they were to teach, uh, make interesting stories, but to teach about morals and that kind of stuff, right and wrong. But in this story, the physical world that we live in is a two, is a three-dimensional world, and it reflects the upper world power, creation, and the lower world power, which is entropy. It's reflecting both of those, and it is a place where those two powers have an interplay, a constant interplay, and into this three-dimensional world where they put us, we're part, we're totally spiritual. So are plants in this belief system. So are rocks and everything else. So let me go through that quick. Rocks are solidified spirit. Water is flowing spirit. Fire is spiritual energy being released. And crystals are purified spirit. It's the most pure form of, of crystallized spirit that you get. So they figured out a way to align rocks and uh, different kinds of stone and earth, which is the most primordial form of it, along water. And they use crystals in, these uh, in their rituals, all of which were used to manipulate and harmonize with, this, with these spiritual powers. So our role in this, why humans were placed here on earth, our role was to harmonize with these two gigantic powers, the forces of the universe, creation and entropy. That is why we're here. And in the course of that, here on this physical plane, there were manifestations of these spiritual powers from the upper world and from the lower world. One of the manifestations is called the trickster. And the trickster is a little bit of both. The trickster entity can appear physically. They, they actually did rituals uh, the book describes one of those rituals. It's a Cheyenne ritual called the Massam Ceremony, but it's not just the Cheyenne. It's all the Algonquins did it. Uh, the Hopi and the Zuni have their own version of the same thing. And it's a way to make these spiritual powers basically become physical and you can interact with them. So 
there is this spirit of disorder. If you think about some things with UFO abductions and so on, I've had I've had uh, lots of conversations with Whitley Strieber on this. Uh, Whitley really likes the idea. Whitley really believes that Native American stuff is tied into it. Uh, at the cabin where Whitley had his initial encounters, he had most of his encounters at a cabin in the woods in New York State. Uh, Whitley told me once when we were talking, he said, you know, I've had cab uh, on my land, I have Indian mounds. And he said, I wonder if the Indian mounds had something to do with it. And I, we talked about it. And to, in my way of thinking, yes, they probably did. So that is uh, kind of the Native American stuff in it. We had some, we put some of the uh, stories that they have and legends that they have about beings coming down. All of the beings that they have from the stars all come down in balls of light. They're always encased in light and they're called light beings and they're called guardians. They talk about harmony. All of the stories are, are pretty much the same uh, from them. And when they return, they return in a light form. And of course, that's Edgar Casey's idea too. Casey talked about our soul that went to the stars after we die and that we came from the stars here, that we were some sort of a spiritual energy and souls. So that's how one way that Edgar Casey fits into this thing. You also talk about uh, certain places on Earth that have particularly dense or high levels of electromagnetic energy, or whatever happens to be, and they, and they can serve as portals in some fashion. Talk a little bit yes. more, more about that. And I think Skinwalker Ranch is one of those. Yeah, Skinwalker Ranch is definitely one. Andrew has been to Skinwalker Ranch. Uh, he talks a bit about that in the book. Uh, I believe Native American shaman, uh, and I mean, we're going way back here in, in time, back to uh, actually in Andrew's half of the book, he starts with shaman that Israeli archaeologists discovered near Tel Aviv, and they dated the remains of the shaman's objects that the shaman was using to 400,000 years ago. Wow. So this, this attempt to contact this paranormal force, there's evidence now going back 400,000 years. And it's something we've interacted with for all time, I believe, and Andrew believes too. All right, I, I got myself way off track. Where do you want to go? I wanted to talk about the, the, <laughs> the properties of these places on Earth that exist, like Skinwalker Ranch, that, okay. that are different than, you know, maybe my backyard. Right, okay. So one of the reasons I went to that Tel Aviv thing is because it's a cave. Caves, you are encasing yourself in the most primordial spiritual energy that exists. And there are rocks that are also there. Uh, Native Americans found that they could align earthworks in specific ways using earth. And there are incredible earthworks. The most incredible earthworks in the world are in Newark, Ohio. If you live anywhere near it or ever get there, go to Newark, Ohio and ask, ask where Mountain Builders Golf Course is. <laughs> that's not the same as the uh, yeah. serp serpent mounds, is it? That's a no. Nope. That's different. No, nope. it would serpent mound would be swallowed by uh, the it's circle and octagon in Newark, Ohio, oh, wow. in the Great Circle. There, these are the largest structures in the world. They are still intact, and the only reason they've been totally intact is because it's starting in the 1800s. A golf course was put there with the understanding that they would not dig into it, that they would not alter it. And it's absolutely incredible. We know what it was used for. It tracked the moon's movements over its 18.61 lunar cycle. 61 year, 18.61 years. 
So it took 18.61 years for it to be built. It's gigantic now. We're talking about something that is physically gigantic. It it's a giant circle that encloses 20 acres. And when I say a circle, the wall, the outer walls are about 15 feet high. Perfect circle. It then has straight lines attaching to an octagon that encloses 50 acres. And in the eight points of the octagon, there is a truncated or flat top pyramid at each of the points. Those were made and aligned so Shaman could perfectly chart the moon's movement, movements during its 18.61 year cycle. And that is how you predict eclipses perfectly. So they not only build it over that length of time, it's the only way they could do it. It's a permanent structure to measure eclipses, but they had to then check it for another 18.61 years. Right. It's not the only one in Ohio. There's another one in Chillicothe that does the same thing. It's not quite as big, but there's loads of other structures in, in Newark that are attached to it. It, it. it defies description. It absolutely defies description. And it's amazing to me that more people just don't know how incredible American archaeology is in the mounds and the, the earthworks, the geometric earthworks are just incredible. But anyway, they discovered how to align these to create rituals. And I'll, I'll give you a little secret in it. And actually, this is not in the book. I had to cut about 50,000 words out of the book, as Andrew did, too. We, we only had so many words that we could put yeah, in and it's, it. It's not, uh, I mean, it's not a thin book. This is a lot of, no, a lot of work here. It's small type. Yeah. yeah. So one of the things that they did, they would make circles that had no opening. You know, it's a perfect circle. And when I say a perfect circle, the interior of it is flat. Usually they had colored sand on the inside and on the floor. Yellow sand was usually around the outer wall. And the outer walls were anywhere from seven to sometimes 25, 30 feet in height. So a perfect circle. You had to climb over the wall to get in. And so they would manifest spiritual entities in there. And the reason the walls were there were to confine it. It was a way to confine the spiritual entities. The belief was that once you manifested a spiritual entity on the surface of the earth, it could only travel in straight lines. And that there, if there was an obstacle in the way, it would stop it. So that was their way of controlling the, manifest, the manifestations within a given area. Crystals were used in a lot of ceremonies. If you squeeze a crystal, it produces electricity. A little experiment you can try sometime if you really want to amaze people. If you have a big enough crystal, one that's maybe a couple inches long, doesn't have to be a good one, uh, and get two of them and wear a pair of gloves. And don't mind if you're going to uh, do a little rubbing of this crystal with the two together because you're going to get little pieces come off. That's where you wear gloves. Go into a bathroom. Make sure there's no light whatsoever in the bathroom. Fill your bathtub with water. Take the crystals, put them underwater, and rub them together as hard as you can, and it'll light up the room. Wow. Because of uh, a well You have to fill the bathtub of... up in the dark? Well, no, you can fill the bathtub. I should have been more precise. <laughs> okay. You fill, the bath... you fill the bathtub up in the light, yeah. I need to be much more precise here in giving these instructions, so don't let it overflow. I'm going to be in there the night. I'm going to be yeah, there in the, the dark idea. going, uh, is it full yet? Is it full yet? <laughs> well, if you can't tell if it's full in the dark, then that's another issue there, too. But no, fill it up in the light. Uh, and the reason you're putting water in there is, one, so you know it's just not sparks flying off. It's not sparks flying off. They're little tiny 
they're actually tiny releases of electrons. Wow. Uh, you're releasing electricity. It's wow. piezoelectricity, it's a well-known effect. But if you do it in the water, it actually refracts the light and makes it a lot more. It makes it much more powerful. So it's a little test you can do. So they would do all kinds of things with crystals. They would put them into leather pouches. I've seen this occur where they grind the leather pouch and the grinding of the pouch would cause this piezoelectric effect. And you'd have little tiny plasmas pop out of it, which are quite visible. And it's a, it's a pretty impressive effect. And those plasmas have their own electromagnetic field and so on. Question? You said something I, I, I was, yeah, I was, I was reading today. Sorry, there's a little, between me and you, there's a bit of a delay. You and JV are pretty direct, but because I'm the odd man out. Um, you said something today about plasma dust presenting itself as maybe earthbound beings. And I, I, I read somewhere that you were talking about that. Is this crystal thing? You just said plasma. Could it be like generating whatever this earthbound no, beings are using uh, the plasma as energy? The plasma, the universe is made of plasma. I mean, the, the most substance of the universe is plasma. That is very well known in physics. So, okay, plasma is the fourth state of matter. You know, you have solids, liquids, and gases. In the 1960s, uh, nobody really knew what plasma was other than saying that it was a, a superheated ball of gas, but it's more than that. So we know a lot more about plasma now. Uh, physicists started saying that plasma naturally generated plasma, which the earth generates. And some of these areas that have these uh, electromagnetic anomalies are window areas that generate a lot of natural energies coming out. So I actually call these time beings, T-I-I-M-E, uh, which stands for temporal intrusions of intelligent manifesting energy. Physicists now say that plasma has all the characteristics of living beings. It reproduces, it is a self, it forms its own external structure. It has what looks like DNA forming in it. Uh, it multiplies itself and reproduces, and it appears to have intelligence. And, and scientists that have studied the UFO phenomenon ever since the 19 really the 1970s, have concluded that plasma has something to do with it. Uh, the, the chairperson of the physics department of Southeastern Missouri State University wrote a book. His name was Harley Rutledge. He wrote a book called Project Identification in 1987. And it told of a seven-year study he did in Missouri studying UFO reports, which Missouri during from 1967 till roughly 1980 or so, had the greatest out, outbreak of UFOs, which included people seeing disks with lights around them, with different colored lights. They saw all sorts of beings. Some people interacted with these beings. Uh, I have interviewed a lot of the people that saw it uh, and many people that, that saw it as a matter of fact. Uh, and so the idea here is that in, plasmas are intelligent, uh, I see it as, I mean, you can call it spiritual energy or whatever you want to, but it's in temp temporary intrusions of intelligent manifesting energy. And it interacts with us. And in its interaction with us, it manifests itself based upon our unconscious state. It's interacting with us biochemically and electromagnetically, and it interacts again, 
with our cultural expectations and our unconscious psychological expectations so that thousands of years ago, people saw angels. Back in the 1800s, people saw these uh, flying ships. You're probably familiar with all those reports yep. that occurred. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in Europe, in the 1400s, 1300s, actually all the way up to roughly the, the 1500s and 1600s, people saw fairies. The Muslims called them jinn, the Muslim jinn, the same thing. Native Americans called them tricksters or the Mayan, the little people. Uh, there's a lot about the little people and little people manifestations and people's interactions with the little people in the book. Andrew has taken this a step further in the book, and Andrew talks about inner dimensionality, multidimensionality, and he talks about string theory and quantum mechanics, uh, quantum tunneling, and a lot of stuff that is probably the most interesting material that I've ever read. Andrew's section was probably the most interesting stuff I've ever read. Uh, and you probably need to get him on as a guest at some point. Oh, yeah, well, that would be amazing. Brett, uh, we, we've almost got gotten to the end of our uh, hour with uh, Greg, but if you've got a couple more questions oh, you want to go really? with. Really? Already? Yeah, I know. I know. And the thing I is. I have so many questions. Yeah, well, the thing is that the first I, half hour, uh, Greg introduced about five other topics that we could spend whole shows on, each of them, and we're going to have yeah. to have him back. But if you want to uh, jump on a couple questions before we end here. Um, I want to, the other thing I heard you talk about, uh, the other day, uh, was DMT, THC, uh, microdosing, changing your mindset to be able to, to see, but DMT is what I'm, that seems to be the newest drug. And I was wondering what your experience was with researching DMT specifically, because if I'm correct and correct me if I'm wrong, please, because you're the professional, I'm definitely not, but DMT is the synthetic version of a drug that the brain creates. Is that correct? Well, okay, so the brain has neurotransmitters. <laughs> we produce natural morphine, which is called endorphins. That actually, the discovery of the, the endorphins and the endorphin receptors is why I got out of psychopharmacology, because my major professor uh, had a different theory, and he left. Uh, he went into private practice, and I actually went into private practice with him and his wife. That's another story. Anyway, okay, so yes, uh, there is, uh, the brain produces a substance that is chemically similar to DMT in very small doses. Uh, it is released primarily at night while you're asleep. Uh, that is probably what causes uh, a lot of dreams and if not all dreams and vivid dreams. Uh, but yes, dimethyltryptamine, I've had some experience with it. We had synthetic uh, DMT or I call it synthetic DMT. Uh, we had that in the labs with uh, loads of other synthetic drugs that were given to us by the DEA. We were doing research for the DEA at the time. This was in the early 70s again. Uh, so the question is, and, and I think I know what you're referring to in that discussion, um, skeptics will say that under the influence of those drugs, you are hallucinating. Basically, you're producing your own visions and seeing what you expect to see. So there's another possibility in that, and that is, is that it, it is altering your receptor sites, particularly receptors maybe in the visual cortex, which the eyes, the retina of the eye has two different types of receptors, the rods and the cones, and they are essentially electromagnetic energy receptors. They're antenna. That's what they are. We don't, people don't know that, but we have millions of antennas inside our eyes. And what those little antennas do is they pick up a tiny little narrow 
spectrum out of the visible spectrum of the electromagnetic energy spectrum. So, and then that energy goes back to the visual cortex, but it's tuned in such a way that we can't see infrared light, nor can we see ultraviolet or anything on the rest of the wavelengths, either to low waves or, or high frequency waves. We can't see those. If we could, we'd be blind. We wouldn't be able to see anything. It'd just be swirling light all the time. So the possibility is that given those substances, it may, it's possible that it may somehow alter these antenna in our in our eyes, in the retina of our eyes, and the the impulse that's going back through the the optic nerve to the visual cortex in the back of the brain. And it's possible that people are seeing things that do exist, but normally they are totally invisible to us because we are not tuned to that part of the electromagnetic energy spectrum. That is that is a possibility. Wow. So are you're they still working with that to this day? Uh, I don't know of anybody who is is doing that. If they are, they're being quiet about it. But there's a lot of research that goes on that nobody knows about. Uh, government search in particular. I wrote a bit about that in the book. I stumbled onto it uh, many, many years ago and found a lot of research uh, that just nobody knows about in this field, uh, in all these fields, in the field of, I mean, the Navy produced a, the Navy actually patented uh, three years ago a electromagnetic plasma generator that produces a decoy in the air. It looks like it's an object. It oh, looks yeah, like it's flying. They can make it move all different ways, uh, impossible angles, uh, and they can change the shape and size of it. It can be picked up on radar because it's a dusty, exotic plasma. As a plasma forms, it begins pulling in whatever it can to physically materialize. It is highly electromagnetic. So it pulls in all kinds of dust. And actually the, the uh, British government in a report called the Condine Report, which came out in 2006, uh, was released in 2006 to the public. It actually said that all genuine UFOs are dusty plasmas and exotic plasmas that appear to interact with us, but we don't have any idea what they are. That's what they said back in 2006. That was the official UK Ministry of Defense report. Wow. Lots of research wow. out there that so the, nobody knows about. It's hard to find. You got to spend so a lot of time to find it. It ain't on the internet. No, no, you got to, I mean, you actually got to go look through a book and read papers. So is it possible? You got to get in. You, is it possible? You have to that, get access. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Right. Uh, is, is it possible that our eyes, like you said, I've always said the spectrum of light is this wide. We just see a little sliver of it as humans, and we'll see a little wider. Younger babies see a little wider. Is it possible that? Our brain is just recording everything it's seeing, and then maybe that when we offset our brain a little bit, get a little too drunk, do a little shrooms, you know, microdose some LSD, do some D, that all of a sudden the brain can't filter out the stuff that it that would confuse us, and all of a sudden we start seeing replays of stuff that we've seen before. Well, anything possible. That possible. Uh, there's <laughs> a thing called synesthetia. We know. Well, we know that that when you take uh, hallucinogens of any kind, there's a thing called synesthenia, and it is the crossover. Uh, I used LSD a long time ago, long statute of limitations long ago past, decades ago, <laughs> 70s. But anyway, um, uh, you know, you, you can see music 
uh, under the influence of LSD, if you take enough, you'll see music. You'll actually see the music forming. Uh, you can smell sound. You can smell color. Uh, you And that is the crossover. And they believe, and I'm saying they believe this, they believe that what it does is, you know, you, I talked about the optic nerve. Well, you have audio, audio nerves that go in the Wernicke's area. And it's believed that there's some electrical crossover there that the hallucinogens cause. So that the the electricity, it's actually not electricity, but the electrical impulse going from your eyes to the back of the brain gets short-circuited. And some of it goes to the hearing area of the brain. So we know, we know that that occurs. Exactly how it occurs is unknown. But it has to do with neurotransmitters and so on, as everything does. Greg, so can anything that, is possible in this. Yeah, Greg, can, can those short-circuiting uh, neurons happen to somebody when they're not on these types of substances? Because I'm looking for an explanation for some of the things that Britt says at a time. You know, just blurt, blurt out these things that make no sense, and I'm trying to find a reason for them. So can these short circuits <laughs> happen just randomly as well? <laughs> Well, I'm not going to, uh, I can't say if his, but what I will say is that yes, they do. There are people that have this. There are many, many people that have had it. Uh, and it can occur from a bump on the head. Uh, sometimes people get sick and it can happen. Uh, various illnesses will do it. Uh, so yeah, that happens. Um, not as not as often as maybe you might like. <laughs> But yes, <laughs> I, I, I don't normally get to talk to people like Dr. Gregory, JV, you, so I got to ask all my crazy no, questions. I, think, I, think, I, I, I have these thoughts and it's like, yeah. what the brain stores stuff and then what would make it come out? And all of a sudden you have a, a yeah. hallucination that no one else sees. But you're seeing it. Yeah. No, they're yeah. great questions. Uh, Greg, one other question has been floating through chat a number of times. The person who asked this question is very, very persistent, so I need to ask it. But uh, they wanted to know your thoughts on Royal Rife. Scientist what? from the 19th? No? Okay. Wasn't sure if you were familiar with him or not. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not really either. Uh, he's done some work on this stuff, but in the 19th century. So uh, we'll do a little research on it, too, and, and uh, maybe talk talk about it on another show okay all right so first of all i need to make you promise you will agree to come back at some point because you've we've opened so many doors to conversations <laughs> oh that we have to explore at some point but apart from that we didn't you know we, we talked about a lot of things we talked about the book where can people find it and do you recommend anybody read in something else to prepare themselves for this or can this be read by somebody who has absolutely no knowledge of any of the things that we've been talking about tonight well, I don't think that I don't think anybody that has no knowledge about it is going to read it to begin with. But if you have an interest in the paranormal, <laughs> anybody can read that if they're into the paranormal UFOs. Uh, and it's it gets more complicated as you go along. I really tried to keep it as simple and write as simply as I possibly could. I love doing those books because we don't use technical language. I, I got to where I dislike doing professional papers. I've done a lot of peer-reviewed journal yeah. papers because it's it's technical. But anyway, uh, you can get the book almost anywhere. It'll be in every bookstore starting May 10th. Uh, it's it's available in, in audio. Every platform there okay. is, every bookseller there is. It's also available in ebook in every platform and every bookseller right now. But they're not releasing the paperback version to May 10th, and that's all supply-side stuff. And it's not going to be available in England and like in Australia until July. 
because that's how long it's taking them to get books across the ocean and across the Pacific. Wow. So it's available anywhere. I can be found. Uh, the easiest way to find me is to Google me. Use my middle initial, Gregory L. Little. If you if you Google Greg Little, you'll find two football players, which they're always more important than anybody else. So Google Gregory L. Little, and I'll pop right up there, and you can find just about everything about me there that you need to. And you can send me an email and complain if you want. And whoever put that question in about the name that I can't even Royal pronounce. Royal Rife. Royal Rife. All right. Uh, don't know. Uh, send me an email and tell me about it. And I'll look it up and, and see what I think. Uh, yeah. I'd love to. That's, Always like to find new stuff. That's terrific. Thanks for your time. Thanks for the fascinating stories and great oh, information, Greg. It was really a great hour, and we appreciate every minute of it. Well, thank you, guys. Been a pleasure, and I'll see you again. Sounds good. All right, so once oh, again, awesome. once again, the book is called Origins of the Gods. It talks about a lot of the things we were talking about tonight, and then some. Uh, I we, we also were trying to have uh, Andrew Collins on the program, but he is in the UK, so the time difference makes it a very difficult interview for him to do live. Um, so maybe we'll be able to do something on a pre-recorded basis with him at some point. You know, maybe that we can set that up. I know he was willing to do that, but thank. Thanks to Greg for coming on. What a great hour. And chat loves it. I mean, chat has, uh, the chat's been oh going, nuts. <laughs> going nuts. Going um, nuts. I, I, he, he comes out of the gate with, with Atlantis. I mean, geez, <laughs> he's out there searching and underwater. He's like Jacques Cousteau and yeah. filming it. And all yeah. these great stories. That, that was amazing. Yeah. I did not expect that at all. I was uh, much. Yeah. And, and he was entertaining. Yeah. He had a sense of humor and he was entertaining. Uh, yeah. That's a great dude. Yeah, that he was his own show. That was a lot of well, he's been on a bunch of shows, uh, done a lot of stuff as I listed in the beginning of the program, history, history 2, discovery, sci-fi, other places. Yeah. A lot of good stuff. Yeah, I'm just saying he, with all the crap that's on TV right now, this dude could bring some real stuff that could educate some people. Uh, he needs a show. Video Demon said, great interview. Uh, Smitten Kitten said, great guest. I agree with both of those. It was a really, it was an excellent time. And thank you for the contribution of the cookie, Video Demon. That's very, very generous and kind of you. Um, so I didn't, so uh, shove your, uh, one of our chatters in YouTube was asking about Royal Rife, and I had no idea who Royal Rife was. I did a quick search, and um, Dr. Royal Raymond Rife and the Rife Machine, born in 1888 in Elkhorn, Nebraska. Raymond Rife, or Royal Raymond Rife, was a gifted scientist studying bacteriology at John Hopkins. Sounds like it'd be a great, uh, if we have find somebody who wrote a book about Royal Rife, sounds like it could be a really interesting uh, interview in itself. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, yeah. God, there were so many more questions to ask. He has he has knowledge on the giants like the six foot eight are the eight foot nine foot people the bones that, that were here in the Americas yeah and, yeah we're talking oh my god we got gig I I had so Nephilim. many more questions for him yeah the well, Nephilim yeah yeah well yeah I, we can only fit so much into an hour and uh, that's I I do hope we can get him back because that was really fascinating and he presents presents it all so well too you know when I asked if if you needed to have any you know, baseline knowledge to go into this book. And he said, no, he, he uh, wrote yeah. it as simply as he could. So you didn't need that. That's a real art in itself to be able to take some complex ideas oh. and be able to relate them in a way that people who may just be, you know, interested for the first time can actually understand them and uh, walk away understanding hey, the concepts. If he can make it for me to understand it, then anybody will be able to understand it. So it's perfect. Yeah. Do you understand and it? He's got book on, and it's on audio, so it's even more amazing for me. So for the people that are, you know, do a lot of driving or, you know, sit at a cubicle and, you know, data entry, books on audio. It's amazing. That's how I learn a lot of stuff.
that in podcast. Yeah. But man, what a great interview. What a great guy. Yeah, a lot of fun. A uh, couple trivia. Um, what? I'm what? Well, you know, so I, I have a question, JV. You're Italian, right? Because you keep telling me I my look mother, like your, your fat uncle. Pudgy. My pudgy Italian uncle. Yeah, you definitely look like my pudgy Italian uncle in this artwork. Whoops, not that artwork. This artwork. Uh-oh. You definitely look like my pudgy Italian there uncle in this. Yeah. Mm, um, all right. Or this. This thing. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, my, oh my pudgy God. Italian uncle. Well, I, I ran across this video, and I wanted to ask you, did your mom, you know, people will smudge their home to, to I guess, push out the evil spirits. Yeah. That's what the Native Americans do. That's what most people do. But I'm wondering if this is how your family did it. I'm going to play this video here. So this is an Italian family, and they're smudging with pasta. The pasta. <laughs> it's pasta smudging. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. That's that's. Is this? Is that, this how? <laughs> that's funny and all, uh, but there's no there's no no? There's, no no that's just steam coming off the end of of pasta that hasn't boiled yet. <laughs> no, that's not how they Italians do it. We're not that stupid. I mean, we're stupid, but not that stupid. Well, I was just wondering if that, if that if I've been doing it wrong and I should use you're having better luck with the pasta. I tell you, you're not going to you're not going to bother anybody's allergies doing it that way. So that's probably a good way to do it if you've got somebody in the house with allergies. Because the smoke okay. that they right, usually just, use when I'm, they're using, uh, you know, some type of incense or other uh, herb, uh, that can bother people's sinuses. So this is probably a safer way to do true. it. That's true. All right. Well, you're the only Italian I know, so I figured I would ask you. I'm the only Italian you know? Yeah, pretty much. How is that even possible? Well, let me let me let me rephrase that. I'm the you're the only Italian I know I could ask that question to okay. not get punched in the nose. <laughs> well, okay. And the only reason that I won't punch you in the nose is because you're three thousand miles away right now. <laughs> so you're safe. <laughs> well that yeah, that, that helps a lot too. Yeah. I don't, I just saw that. I immediately thought of you. That's funny. It is funny. But the, um, that I would share. Yeah, it's it's, it's actually very uh, comical too. I'll see memes and and things in, on Facebook or other places that you know talk about uh, you know you know your family's Italian when and there's a whole bunch of funny things and I can't remember yeah. any of them right now. But it, these stereotypes are so true. Now everybody's saying, "What your last name's Johnson? How can you be Italian?" My dad obviously wasn't Italian. <laughs> My mother was born in Naples, Italy. Came over here at three months old. My grandparents barely spoke English. I actually uh, live with my grandparents. I think I've told the story. Lived with my grandparents for the first almost three years of my life because my father was in a band and my parents traveled. Um, so my first language was Italian. And then uh, when I went to elementary school, I actually had to go to speech therapy to lose my Italian accent. So um, I, I, even though I'm not 100% Italian because my dad wasn't Italian, I, I, culturally, I'm, I'm 100% Italian. All right. Does that explain it That's for you? cool. Yeah, it does. It does. All right. All right. That's all I got on my side. Trivia time. You're, uh, I was supposed to tell you hi a couple of weeks ago from FR. I don't know who FR is. <laughs> I don't know what that means. But thank you, Jada. Thanks for delivering that message. Hello, FR. Oh, Felissa, maybe? Whoever FR is. Felissa Rose, is that who you're talking about? I actually owe her a phone call. Um, okay, we're going to do a couple trivia questions. Uh, what's the name of the incomplete novel that Charles Dickens was, Dickens was writing at the time of his death? Melissa Rose, the actress? Yeah. Yes. Are you just catching up to... You know, you knew celebrities. Yeah, pretty much. 
what is the name of the incomplete? Maybe I'll have Felissa come on the show next week. We could talk to her about something. Who oh, knows? that'd be fun. Yeah. Uh, what's the name of the incomplete novel that Charles Dickens was writing at the time of his death? Yeah, uh, uh, Jada, I haven't talked to Fliss in a while. This whole COVID thing just interrupted the 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 schedule of events and the flow of all that stuff. Um, I was traveling all the time, going to events and booking people. I actually have an event in uh, Vancouver, uh, Vancouver, Canada, that they're looking to me to bring some to book some celebrities for. And I'm just like, you know, I'm so I, I've been out of touch with this whole circuit for a couple of years because of COVID. Anyway. Yeah, COVID screwed up all the fun. Brett, I don't know what you're doing with that right arm of yours that's shaking like crazy, but um, please make sure that camera doesn't slip down. Ooh. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> what? Well, I'm in a bigger screen that I can see of myself, so I can totally see what I was doing. Oh. But you have me so squared out yeah. that I, it's kind of hidden. I thought we had a Jeffrey I'm, Tubin I'm moment going on. I'm soloing on my knees. We had a Tubin going on. Oh, no, no Jeffrey Tubin, Tubin moment. moment. No, no, um, I'd let you watch. No, let you don't watch. don't say that. I don't want you, anybody to think that. <laughs> uh, what is the name of the incomplete novel that Charles Dickens was Dickens? I don't want to say Dickens. Dickens was writing at the time of his death. Yeah, Tubin and Dickens, huh? What's a that new, in your brain? A New Year's Carol, a Christmas Carol. I I told you I was sick. Uh, I told you I was sick. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny, actually. Oh, oh my god! Uh, I have Carol. no idea. I don't know anything about Dickens. You don't know anything about Dickens. You know what his I most famous was a writer, and I had you know his famous most famous work was right. Uh, 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 the the kid on the boat, right in the river. The kid on the boat um, with the in the river. The uh, I'm drawing a blank. Tom Sawyer? Oh, well, that would be that would be uh, Mark Twain, not Charles Dickens. Oh, um, wrong author. Okay, that's right. <laughs> Actually, I knew that. Uh, Dickens. Uh, what did Dickens write? Um, don't help him, people. Don't help don't, him. <laughs> Let him work uh, through this. Dickens wrote... Uh, I should... I had to read it in high school, right? I don't know. Um, I mean, it was like a... A required reading of an English class, right? I point. don't know. I didn't have to read any of Dickens' work in uh, in English oh, class, mm -mm. but that's you know maybe it's um, different where you went. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's pretty, I can't remember. Okay, what, I, it, it should I have, be. I mean, I the no fact idea. the fact that you're struggling with this means you're not thinking the right way. Charles Dickens wrote A Christmas Carol, Ebenezer Scrooge, and all that. That's that's his most famous work. He also wrote oh, Tale of Two Cities. Duh. I mean, I, I, yeah. So uh, I'm really kind of sorry duh. I asked the question because that was painful. Um, so, uh, let's see, where is yeah, it? Yeah, it was painful for me. Video Demon said the mystery of Edwin Drood, and that is exactly the right answer. In the story, a man named Edwin Drood disappears, but Dickens didn't write far enough to reveal what happened to him. Oh, wow. So that's a mystery. Oh, that is a painful wow. one. He, I mean, because it probably would have been a fascinating story. Holy cow. Wow. Holy a cow. Mystery. All right. Next question. Here we go. Uh, who played James Bond in the 1969 film on Her Majesty's Secret Service? I think uh, I know that this would one. Be Sean Connery. I think I know this one. 
69. 69. Yeah, I was going to say uh Roger Moore, but I'm not but I might but it might have been Sean Connery. No, it's right in, the in 80s. that Well, but uh, Sean Connery did a few, then he then someone else stepped in, and then he did a few more, and then Roger Moore came in, I think. Hmm. Well, Rudy's going with Roger Moore. Uh part five's going with Sean Connery. Yeah. Um Video Demon admitted uh admitted to cheating. <laughs> oh, you cheated, Video Demon? We're not yeah, we know yeah, that's that's that's, that's, that's a rule here, no cheating. Please, he's the only real James Bond. Who? Sean Connery, I'm assuming you're talking about Smitten Kitten. That's probably true, too. I think we need to sentence Video Demon 204 to two Our Fathers and three Hail Marys for his sin of cheating. Yes. R- Richard Marks wrote about a missing girl but never finished that either. Richard Marks, the pop singer? I never really liked Richard Marks. I always thought his songs were just really cheesy. Roger Rabbit? I don't even know who that is. Richard Marks? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. I'm tired. What? Uh, who played James Bond in the 1969 film On Her Majesty's Secret Service? I'm, go- I'm still going with Sean Connery. Okay, so Lost Mom says George Lazenby. Uh, Scooter over in the U, uh, YouTube chat said George Lazenby. The answer is George Lazenby, Australian actor George wow. Lazenby, who had the distinction of being the only Bond actor to appear in just one Bond film. So that must have been, it must have been Connery. This George came in for a film. I don't know why Connery didn't do that one. And then Connery came back for however many. And then Roger Moore took over. I think that's how it worked. Yeah. I think that's how it works. Yeah. All right, last trivia question, ah. Scooter. No more. This is the final one for you all. Uh, ooh. Name the groundbreaking 19th century female astronomer who wrote influential books such as Mechanism of the Heavens in 1931 and became one of the first women to join the Royal Astronomical Society. Britt, you study female astrologers. Uh, you must know this one. I just like being a dark field with them on a blanket looking up. Oh, is that what it is? You just do it for the for the date? Yeah. You do it for the romance? Yeah, basically. <laughs> yes, for the romance. <laughs> you do it for the romance. <laughs> he, he, he's into uh, female astrologers because you can get him in a dark field on a blanket <laughs> where no one can hear you scream, apparently. Oh, yeah, pretty man. much. <laughs> What was the question again? Name the groundbreaking 19th century female astronomer who wrote the influential books, who wrote influential books such as Mechanism of the Heavens in 1931 and became one of the first women to join the Royal Astronomical Society. Uh, That'd be Sean Connery. (sighs) Go with Sean Connery. Always go with Sean Connery. Uh, Anne Rand? I have no clue. Madam None Ruby, I'm a star child. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> I'm a star child. Jodie Foster. Jodie Foster. Yeah, Jodie Foster. That very, very famous <laughs> 19th century female astronomer. Okay. All right. We got no she more used guests. To listen to satellites. Pardon me. Eh, that's all I got. 
I lean I over. Know, I yeah. Being an yeah. I lean over. Uh, Ben's. I lean over. Ben's uh, sister, right? All right. The answer. Nobody's gotten the answer. Um, yeah. No clue. Uh, Mary Somerville, among her many contributions to astronomy. No, I didn't. Many among her many contributions to astronomy, Somerville hypothesized about the existence of a planet in our solar system beyond Uranus. She was later proved right when Neptune was discovered. So there you go. She was she was looking All around. Right. So she was out in a dark field with you, Britt, looking around your anus and found Neptune. She was wetting around <laughs> my anus? Not your anus. What did you just your say? Anus. <laughs> Look at you turn red. <laughs> your anus, not your anus. <laughs> oh, okay. Wow. <laughs> Somebody's got a dirty oh, mind and I saw my tubing and dicking and Whoa. Oh my god. Yeah, we're, it's me in that world. We're using a silly trivia of the day calendar, and I'm only on uh I'm still on July, Thursday, July 29th, 2021. So I got a ways to catch up. Got a ways way yeah. to catch up here. Yeah, I know. I know, Scooter. We need Harold Butts. We We need Harry Butts to talk about uh, Uranus um, and his uh, his mission there. (laughs) Oh, okay. All right. Well, that's going to do it for tonight. We went off the rails. We did uh, Thursday night. We have who is this? What? Yeah. Well, you can talk about merch. People go to. uh... While you're looking it up. Oh, okay. Uh, go to the uh, go to the website paranormalirl.com go to the merch button we have t-shirts up there's a couple new t-shirts a bigfoot t-shirt and a uh, alien t-shirt is up there don't stop believing yeah the alien shirt Um, alien shirt has been taken down because of misspellings oh is there a misspelling (laughs) on that yes which word believing alien no, I, maybe that too, but, I, but believing for sure. Oh, damn it. I just copied and pasted it from no, the other one. No, you didn't and because one, one is spelled right. correctly and one is spelled incorrectly, mm-hmm. huh, which huh. I thought was I quite a trick. Anyway, yeah. all right, well, wow. Yeah, because normally I just copy and paste that shit. Um, all right, well, I'll fix that and put it back up. Um, anyway, just buy some shirts. It helps us. It helps supports JV and I, mostly JV because he pays the most for them. The software on his side. Which yeah, you're right. You're right, Lala. Um, we do have a new shirt on there, and I've actually I'm going to grab a picture of a screenshot of it because uh, it just went up today, and it's kind of kind of a cool. Oh, we should. Kind of a cool thing. Um, it's an eleven eleven shirt. What is that? You're not familiar with the significance of eleven eleven. Oh, should I be? Looks like we're going to have to do a show on 1111. No, it looks like we're going to have to do a show about 1111. The 1111 shirt. Hmm. Fresh on oh, the very cool. Fresh on the Paranormal IRL merch page. Yes. Oh, okay, so awesome. so Thursday night we've right. got Mike Ricksecker. I've had Mike on uh, Beyond Reality 3 or 4 times. He always brings uh, a, a large audience with him um, of his fans. He talks, he's written books about shadow people. So the conversation will primarily be about shadow people and paranormal investigating ghosts, that kind of thing. He's done a lot of work on it, written a lot of books, and it should be a really fascinating discussion. That is Thursday night's program, not tomorrow night, Thursday night. 
Yeah. Tomorrow night you'll be over on the other show. Tomorrow night should be, oh, yes. I'll find JB there. Yes. Uh, the Independence Gang. A lot to talk about there, too. So, all right, that's going to do it for here, though. Thank you to everybody for being here, and thank you for contributions and the help. Uh, we do appreciate that as well. It helps us pay the bills to keep the programs flowing. Having said that, we'll see you all Thursday. 